Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here today with Ambassador Frank Lavin. He's a China e-commerce expert, an author, a businessman, and, a, and as, I, as mentioned, a former diplomat. Uh, Ambassador Lavin has worked in the private sector for several years, helping companies navigate China's markets. He previously served as ambassador to Singapore for the United States in the George W. Bush administration, and he was Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. Ambassador Lavin recently wrote a book entitled The Smart Business Guide to China E-Commerce, which explains the vast world of China's e-commerce exports and market participation. Ambassador Lavin, we're really pleased to have you today on Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Dan, thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. Great to reconnect with you and uh, very gracious of you to uh, host this event. So tell me a little bit about you first. I, I, you've written, this isn't your first book. You've written other books. You're from Ohio, if I recall correctly, and you may right. even have had a past at CSIS. That's right. No, I've spent about half my career, Dan, in government and about half in the, been about half in the private sector and just enjoyed it all. Most of it's had an international focus. Most of it's had a China focus, but I, and I had the great good fortune of being a visiting fellow at CSIS for a Good number of years when uh, Bill Taylor is director of programs and responsible for Asia activities, and that was great. It got me plugged into a lot of the serious policy discussions in town. But in government, I was in the Reagan administration and then both Bush administrations. Most of my time with Reagan was in the White House and the National Security Council staff. And then with the first George Bush, I was the Asia DAS at the Commerce Department, the Deputy Assistant Secretary. So that gets into a lot of blocking and tackling to help U.S. companies in Asia. I did a reprise of that in the George W. Bush administration. I was Undersecretary of Commerce, so you're sort of the lead commerce official for trade negotiations and market access and solving commercial problems. And, and as you noted, just prior to that Undersecretary job, I was a U.S. Ambassador to Singapore for four years where we did the free trade agreement and had a number of other successes on our belt as well. So it's been great. For the last 10 years, I've been running this Export Now business, uh, Dan, which is that we run e-commerce stores in China for U.S. brands. So we're a turnkey outsource solution provider. Anybody who's got, so to speak, a decent U.S. e-commerce set of activities going on, we can replicate that more or less in China for that brand. So whatever you've got going in the United States, make, it, make that exact same thing happen in China. So why did you write this book? Well, it's interesting. You know, China is a huge market in itself, but it's also the market with which... Americans tend to have the least familiarity, meaning you don't really need to write a book for American businesses about how to succeed in Canada. And you can find folks who have strong Mexico background. And most people have some kind of British or European orientation. But when you get to China, it's a huge gap, language gap, cultural gap, big political differences, different business practices. And so it's just intimidating. So I think Americans really do need to be 
sort of held by the hand and coaxed and nudged and have a conversation with to get them to think about China. And and the point here, Dan, is China is the largest e-commerce market in the world, even larger than the United States. So if it costs you, uh, for argument's sake, if it costs you roughly the same effort or expense in Mexico or France or China to open up an e-commerce store, odds are you're going to be much, much better off opening it up in China first. And that's just where the market is. And you'll be able to reach that 1.4 billion population uh, just as easily as you could reach the French or the Mexican population. And what is the message of this book? What do you, what's the message you want to leave people with? Well, I think there are a few points I'm trying to say is one, the, just talk about the core point is, is the law of large numbers to say, if you've got something good happening and you can increase the base of numbers on which it's happening, you're going to be better off. So uh, China's population is 1.4 billion, about 950 million active e-commerce shoppers. That means at least once in the last year, 950 million people have purchased online. Uh, so that's a wonderful base. So even if you're reasonably small market share, reasonably small percentage of activity, you can be quite happy with your e-commerce program in China. I think that's point number one. Point number two is any good brand, any good consumer product has a narrative has digital assets, meaning they have uh, a social media program in the United States, they have video clips in the United States, they have celebrity spokespeople perhaps in the United States, and that can be transferred and localized to a China market. So if you have the digital asset that you can tell your story with, you can usually make that work in China. And point number three, if I say this is of all the major markets in the world, China is the only one that doesn't have incumbent brands in that premium space. The dominant space in the China market, as you might guess, is in the mass market segment or the value segment of the market. That's where the Chinese local brands and local manufacturers tend to end. But if you're in the if you're an American brand in the apparel sector or personal care sector or the beauty sector, and you want to sell into Europe, you're going to find an incumbent brand in a European country or in Japan the same thing. But if you go to China, you're going to have running room there to sell, and there's a hunger in China for these U.S. brands and these premium international brands. Well, all right, this is this is very interesting. Now, you mentioned it's bigger than the United States. How exactly big is it exactly, the, the e-commerce market? Alibaba, the main e-commerce company in China, is about three times the size of Amazon. Really? Yeah, it's, it's bigger in absolute terms, not just in relative terms. It's bigger in absolute terms. Here's, here's another data point. In the U.S., e-commerce accounts for about 20% of retail spending. Right, what what we it's growing, but it's only about twenty percent. So most Americans do most of their shopping at the mall, at the corner shop, at the big box store, and so forth. In China, it's over fifty percent. So over fifty percent of the retail spend is online. So that battle's already over in China. Meaning you can go to China now as a foreign brand and set up your e-commerce store, and you're already talking to over fifty percent of the market. So we'd say any brand in the world can be pure play e-commerce in China. And that's a fabulous strategy. So if you think about China's e-commerce market, how does it interact with Southeast Asia or other parts of Asia? I'm thinking Taiwan or Japan or Korea or the ASEAN countries. How should one think about China in the context of larger Asia? Well, I'd say this, China is a standalone market as most markets are. You will definitely see some of the products sold in China sold to all offshore. And just, by the way, just as you will in the U.S., if you're on Amazon U.S. or eBay U.S., you'll find that a reasonable percentage, single-digit percentage of your products are sold offshore. Somebody in Germany wants that 
product. So that's perfectly fine. But you're really, if you're on Amazon in the U.S. or if you're on Tmall, the main Alibaba platform in China, you're really speaking to Chinese population. Uh, so we'd say something like 95% of the Tmall sales are to mainland China. Uh, that remaining 5%, about half go to Taiwan or Hong Kong. So there is some global distribution you'll get from people who prefer Chinese language websites, but you're really building out a Chinese brand. If you want to tackle these markets in Southeast Asia, and, and I suggest you look at that, you'll want to talk to a service provider, and there are companies that handle multiple markets because you'll need a standalone platform, website, language activity in each country, right? Vietnam, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, you'll need your own website and so forth. So it can be a bit complicated, but there are companies, one of them Alibaba owned, Lazada, the other C, C Corp, SEA, that will do it for you. So they'll say if you're uh, LL Bean and you say, I want to run websites in these eight markets, they'll say, we'll do it for you. Uh, we'll run it out of centralized web inventory. We'll have websites in each local language. We'll take local currency, local credit cards, and we'll fill the orders. So that's a wonderful blessing for the U.S. merchant, but, but that's not directly related to the China program. So there's often been concerns. I'm sure this came up when you were an undersecretary of commerce. There's been ongoing concerns in the United States about issues of intellectual property and concerns. As you thought about this book, did that come across your radar at all, these issues of intellectual property? Yeah, it, it does, Dan. And I think it's a very fair concern because you'll find illegal activity where people are just fabricating the brand and manufacturing. So black market activity, you'll find illegal activity and you'll find aggressive legal activity where people aren't necessarily crossing a legal line, but they're coming as close as they can to mimicking your trademark or mimicking your recipe and so forth. So you've got both those phenomena going on. But let me say this, the best defense is a good offense. Meaning if you see there's black market activity, or gray market activity, or weird things going on in China, get your own store going. Get your own official store going. And right away we see collapse in black market activity. Meaning a segment of the Chinese consumers might only be price conscious, don't care about quality. But the majority segment cares about quality. And they don't mind paying a few dollars more for the official product. Right? Especially if it's cosmetics or health related they say look I, you know might be a slight premium to get the official product but it's their health it goes inside their body or touches their skin they want to make sure they're getting the right product so what we do for our many of our clients is we run uh, secret shopper programs and other kind of monitoring programs because i think there's a very fair concern about am i squeezing out all of the black market activity by the way we see more gray market activity in china than black market meaning gray market i mean it's it's the legitimate product but it's coming through informal sales channels. So somebody in Thailand has access to this American product, buys large quantities from Thailand, and then resells it in China. So the product itself is not being copied or pirated or stolen, but the sales channel is an informal sales channel. It's not the approved sales channel. Some brands don't mind that. Some brands really do mind that because it can wash out if they're having a pricing strategy. This gray market can work against the pricing strategy in each market. You know, we're in the process of rethinking our relationship with mainland China. And in some ways, as I read this book, I thought, boy, this this would have been an interesting book to publish, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. The timing's particularly interesting. I'll put it that way. I'm sure you thought about the timing of this book in the context of sort of our rethink of our relationship with China. I certainly don't think we're going to get a full economic divorce from China. So at the same time, it's perfectly reasonable to, to be thinking about how we engage commercially with China. But I'd be curious about how you thought about 
that as you were writing the book? Yeah, Dan, I think that you're absolutely right. That's a very fair question. We are, no doubt, we're at kind of a down moment in the bilateral relations. There's a set of trade friction, which has gone on for a number of years and really rose to new heights in the Trump administration. There's uh, geopolitical issues and differences. There's human rights issues. And on top of that, there's supply chain disruptions and there's Donald Trump's tariffs. So there's all sorts of reasons why people feel uncomfortable in China. I'll tell you, I'm just looking through the trade numbers, though, because the Commerce Department just published for the first 10 months of this year, U.S. exports to China this year are up 27%. U.S. imports from China are up 17%. So that tells me, look, despite that bad news, despite that cloudy weather we've got, and it's hard to be optimistic, boy, there's a business logic beneath the surface that is very strong. China, regardless of political issues, there's just a huge market appeal in China for U.S. businesses, and the Chinese consumers are hungry. And I'll tell you, it illuminates another point, too, that G to G doesn't always equal P to P. In other words, government to government issues, problems, friction, ill will, doesn't always translate or necessarily translate into person to person ill will or problems, right? That that Americans in general, I don't think, have any personal animosity towards Chinese citizens, and I don't think Chinese Consumers have any particular animosity towards Americans, even though at the government level, there are a range of problems. So what do you think our commercial relationship with mainland China is going to be going forward? I think it is going to be sticky. I don't see anybody on the China side with an appetite to improve matters. And on the U.S. side, I don't think we've wielded the tools that would incentivize that. Meaning, if you were in Washington right now, in the government right now, I should say, Dan, because you are in Washington, what you'd want to do to help China move the right way on some of these trade issues is you'd want to get as many trade talks going as possible. And it would highlight China's inefficiencies and provide an incentive for them to improve. But the Trump administration shut down all of the trade talks and the Biden administration says they're going to look at some things next year, but they haven't done anything yet. So China's got no incentives to move or improve. And on the China side, there was so much animosity that came from Trump, so much friction and the addition of tariffs to take any move toward the U.S. point of view from China runs the risk of looking like weakness in the Chinese side. So the Trump administration, I think, made it more difficult for China to liberalize or to fix some of these problems. So tell me about So there's lots of been lots of focus in Washington about some of the challenges that China is going to be facing, either economically or demographically, et cetera. I'm assuming for the short to medium term, that's not going to have any impact on sort of consumer buying or sort of the emergence of a, you know, there's an emerged middle class, a significant one, really a, a huge one. Do you believe that China will someday escape the middle income country trap and become a, you know, a fully wealthy country at some point? Yeah, this is an interesting question, Dan, and I think it's an open question at this point, meaning China's had a formula for success that is now some 40 years old. And by the way, it's been an enormous success. But the formula was we're going to liberalize our economy. We're going to do a partial liberalization internationally, and we're going to make use out of our lower cost structure in employment and heavy industry. And all of those together contributed to a, as I said, 40 years of something like that average of 7% annual growth. I mean, it was really a fantastic transformation. As you note, how long can you play that out? Well, they're probably at the end of that formula. They have to move more into the knowledge economy place and the integrated global economy supply chain. And it's it's a different world and it's going to require China to get their game up a bit. Now, can they do it? There's no reason why they can't do it, but it's just a new area of competition for them in order to make that move. And they, and they 
I don't think they've yet made that journey. So it's uh, still an open question. And you're also right, I think, about the economic maturity of the country that as you as you hit middle income and you've educated the population, you're not going to get those kind of marginal gains in labor productivity that historically you've gotten over the last few decades. So the next the next few yards, so to speak, on the football field come a lot tougher than the first few yards, right? And I think de- I think demographics are a challenge as well. But but as you note, for the next I would say ten or twenty years, it won't materially affect the economy. How, how does the? There's been lots of discussion watching about a digital yuan and you know crypto, central bank currency in China. Did that come across your radar screen as you were writing this book? Not much, because I look. It is interesting what they're doing there, and they're in some respects they're more experimental than many other countries, including the United States. But it doesn't directly affect what we're discussing in the book. And China e-commerce is just sort of normal commercial activity, normal retail behavior. So think of it this way: you're a U.S. brand, and you're running a store on Amazon in the U.S. Whether the U.S. moves more toward digital currency or not, or whether Amazon accepts cryptocurrency as payment or not doesn't directly affect your Amazon strategy. I mean, it might be an interesting asterisk or something in the next few years, but it won't really determine whether you're going to be successful on Amazon or not. So the mechanism of payment and what China's doing with it is is interesting. You know, I think the real risk factor, if you ask me, Dan, in China is not that it affects the commercial space or the brands in China, but it might affect the credit cards in China. Because to the extent your credit card is used more like a debit card, just an auto pay kind of system, you're just buying things. I think what the central bank in China, POBOC, is saying is, look, that's really a government role, and there's no need for a private company to make money out of that. And so we're going to give you a digital wallet, and you can pay digitally from your bank using digital currency, and it'll be free or, or a nominal fee. There's no need for MasterCard or American Express, whatever, to take a few percentage points. And we don't even like the Chinese banks taking a few percentage points. All you do, all this is a payment instrument. So we're going to move down that path. So that will be, if, if they do that, if they do that, as I described it, that will be a nice efficiency for the consumer. But it will, it will be a detriment to the credit card companies. Right. So I look, I think it's it's very interesting. Well, look, Frank, thanks very much for coming on today. The book is entitled The Smart Business Guide to China E-Commerce by Ambassador Frank Lavin. Frank, congratulations on the book. Very, very interesting. Dan, thanks so much for having me on. Always great chatting with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, the Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog 